Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. Our study in the book of Hebrews brings us today to chapter 1, verses 4 to 14. My subject is Jesus Christ Superior to Angels. And I want to begin by reading this section, verses 4 through 14 of Hebrews chapter 1. Being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth the first begotten into the world, he saith, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels he saith, Who maketh his angels spirits, and his ministers a flame of fire, but unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest. And they all shall wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Our text says being made so much better than the angels. And that comparative adjective, better, which means superior, is one of the key words in the book of Hebrews. The word better appears 13 times in this epistle. We read that Christ has a better name, that he has a better priesthood. There's a better hope, a better covenant, established upon better promises. There's a better sacrifice than the sacrifices of the old covenant. We're looking for a better country. We're waiting for a better resurrection and a number of other terms in which this adjective better is used. Now, when we hear that something is better, we question better than what? And of course, what the writer to the Hebrews is telling us is what we have since Jesus Christ came is so much better than anything that the children of God had in olden times. The gospel is better than the law. The new covenant is better than the old covenant. There has never been an age of time as blessed and privileged as the one in which we live since the coming of Jesus Christ. We live in the better days. You say, well, Brother Mike, I want the best. Well, the best is yet to come. He saves the best wine until last. And heaven will be infinitely better than anything we've ever experienced in this world. But my beloved, many prophets have desired to see the things that you see. Many wise men have desired to hear the things that we hear in this dispensation of time. Since Jesus Christ came, we are living in the age of gospel light. And it's a better day 
than any previous time in human history. We are the most privileged and blessed of all people in human history. Now notice it says in our text that he was made better, being made so much better than the angels. And you may know that several cults and non-Christian religions will cite verses like this and say, aha, being made better, that shows that Jesus is less than God. For how could he be made something unless he is subordinate to the Father? Being made so much better than the angels, that's an argument against the deity of Jesus Christ these various cults say. But I want you to notice, yes, this verse does speak of an acquired superiority. He's made so much better. He's acquired this level of superiority. But already the language in the previous verse has told us that he has an intrinsic superiority to the angels. Listen to verse 3. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of God's person. Who is Jesus? He is the radiance or the brightness of God's glory. That is, he's the outshining, just as the rays of the sun cannot be distinguished from the sun that produces them. In other words, he's not just a reflection, like the moon reflecting the light of the sun, but he is the actual sun itself. Jesus Christ, my beloved, is God of very God. He's truly God. And it says he's the express image of God's person. You may be interested to know that that word express image has reference to a die cast. When they make coins, they come up with a stamp and the uh, metal is poured into the die. And the coin that emerges is of the very same shape and size as the die in which it was cast. It's the exact expression. You see, it's impressed and then the coin is the expression of that impression. This verse says Jesus is the express image. Just as you can't distinguish a coin from the die in which it's cast, so Jesus Christ cannot be distinguished from the glory of God the Father. Jesus is God. So just because he says he was made better in verse 4 does not argue against the deity of Jesus. But again, this expression has to be understood as we learned last week in terms of the mediatorial office that Christ assumed in the covenant of redemption before time began. In the council halls of eternity past, Jesus volunteered to assume a lesser or subservient role as mediator. He came under orders to do the will of his Father. My friends, after he had finished the work that he came to do, he was exalted and now he is made better. This is an acquired superiority. The language of verse 3 indicates he's intrinsically superior to the angels. But now verse 4 tells us that after his work of redemption, he has been elevated to the highest throne in heaven or in earth. Psalm 89.27 says, I will make him my firstborn higher than the kings of the earth. The exaltation of Christ, in other words, was purchased by his humiliation. And if you look into the next chapter of Hebrews, chapter 2, verse 9, it tells us that Jesus was made a little lower than the angels, but now he's been made so much better or higher than the angels. You see, his humiliation, now his exaltation, he was humiliated because he had volunteered to be the mediator in the covenant of grace, now he's been exalted because his work is finished and the Father has received 
his finished work. Now notice in this passage that I read in your hearing this morning, all of the references to angels. You see angels are mentioned in verses 4, 5, 6, 7, 13, and 14. And even into the next chapter, chapter 2 of Hebrews, verses 2, 5, 7, 9, and 16, all mention angels. That's very curious to me that he starts this letter with such a lengthy section addressing angels. Angels, of course, are intriguing characters. There's mystery surrounding them, is there not? And I would say not only is there much mystery concerning angels, but there is a good bit of superstition surrounding this subject as well. And may I say that in an age in which there is increasingly more and more interest in the mysterious, in the mystical, it's important for us to take our doctrine, what we believe, directly from the Bible, from the Word of God. Thus saith the Lord, not from man's opinions or from traditions and legends or anecdotal evidence in this world. My friends, the Bible tells us a great deal about angels, but still, once we learn what the Bible tells us, I think we could say they are mysterious creatures. There's a mystery that surrounds them. Let's give you several biblical facts this morning about angels. Angels are a special class of creatures that were made by God. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 says, talking about Jesus Christ, and by the way, this passage in Colossians 1 is very similar to the Hebrews 1 passage that we're studying at the moment. He says, for by him, by Jesus, the Son, were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth. Who's the creator? Well, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. It's a Trinitarian work, creation, but in this verse, it says Jesus, the Son, is the agent of creation. And it says all things were created by him. He's the only eternally existent being in the universe. And therefore, everything else that exists must have its source and origin in him. For by him were all things created, things that are in heaven and that are in the earth. Watch this, visible and invisible. Reality is not limited to the visible seeable, touchable world in which we live, but there is an invisible or spiritual realm that is just as real as the visible world that we see. I can experience nature with my five senses. I can see, smell, hear, touch, and taste the world around me. But there's an invisible world, says Colossians 1.16, that is a product of divine creation just as much as the visible world. And he goes on to say, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, and these four terms in Colossians 1.16 have reference to gradations or ranks of angelic beings. Thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers, these are like generals and captains and lieutenants and sergeants. In other words, just as you have rank in the military, so the angelic host is described in these ethereal or mysterious terms. And Jesus is said to be the creator of thrones, dominions. All things were created by him and for him, says the text, and he is before all things and by him all things consist. You say, well, Brother Mike, if angels were created by God, when were they made? Probably concurrent with Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens 
and the earth. At that point, he made the angels, and that's why in Job 38, 7, the writer indicates that the angels rejoiced at each subsequent act of creation when it says that the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So what are angels? They are creations of God. Unique creations, I grant you, but still creatures. And therefore they belong to the natural world or the created world. They're not eternal. And you say, why were they created? Well, the second thing we learn about them, they were created to be God's messengers to men. By the way, the word angel literally means messenger. And they come with a message. Some of them bring messages of woe. In the book of Revelation, you read that the angel flew through the heavens saying, woe, woe, woe. And that is not a happy message. But then some of the angels bring messages of blessing or wheel, like Gabriel, the good news angel. Gabriel showed up to announce the coming birth of John the Baptist to Zacharias and Elizabeth. He also showed up to announce to Mary that she was with child of the Holy Ghost. What good news the angel Gabriel brought on those occasions. Angels also at the empty tomb in Acts chapter 1 verse 11 explained the significance of the ascension of Jesus Christ to the disciples saying to them, this same Jesus which has gone up from you shall so come in like manner as you've seen him go into heaven. So angels are created beings and they were created to be God's messengers. You say, well, why don't we have an angel in the pulpit this morning? Because we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of men. People may come out to hear an angel more than they would a man, but I'll tell you, angels cannot identify with the gospel message that I'm proclaiming today. For the angels are not redeemed. They are not beneficiaries of the precious blood of Jesus Christ and His redeeming grace like men are. So a preacher is not just a herald, a messenger, but he's also somebody who gives testimony. So angels are messengers. They were also created to be worshipers of God. Psalm 148 verse 2 says, Praise ye the Lord, all ye His angels. Praise the Lord, all ye His hosts. Angels were created to be congregants before the throne of God, celebrating Him in worship. Revelation chapter 4 says that I beheld the four beasts, and the four and twenty elders, and the living creatures fell down before the Lamb upon the throne. And they said, Thou art worthy, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. Every worship scene in the book of Revelation, and there are five of them, by the way, you'll always find angels celebrating and worshiping the God of heaven. So they are worshipers of God. No angel, no godly angel will receive worship to himself. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 10, John said, I fell at the feet of the angel, and the angel told me to stand upon my feet. He says, worship God, him only shalt thou serve. The angel would not receive worship because the angels themselves are created to be worshipers of God. So what are angels? Angels are special, unique creations of God created for the purpose of bringing messages to men, whether messages of judgment or of blessing. They are worshipers of God surrounding the throne, devoted to extolling and praising and celebrating the glory and the greatness of God. 
I would say, fourthly, angels are volitional creatures. They have a will. I mentioned that Lucifer had fallen. Lucifer means the shining one. And you can read about him in Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28. And he was probably the counterpart to Michael, the archangel. The word arch means supreme or superior. You know, you hear in certain churches of a bishop and an archbishop. Well, that means he's higher than the regular bishops. He's the archbishop. Somebody says, this person is my arch enemy. That expression means that they're my supreme enemy. And uh, the archangels, like Michael and again, probably his counterpart, Lucifer, were the highest rank, the five-star generals, if you please, in God's army. And Lucifer decided that he would revolt against the government of God. He said, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit in the temple of God. I will sit on the sides of the north in the seat of God. Lucifer decided that he was going to launch a coup d'etat or a revolution against the government of God. He's going to try to overthrow God's rule. And his rebellion was found out and God judged him and disqualified him, cast him out into the earth. And the book of Jude tells us that he drew a third part of the stars with him, which indicates that about 33% of the angelic host followed him in his revolt. So we know that the fact that he decided to launch this rebellion, as is recorded in Jude 6, indicates that angels have a will, that they can make decisions, that they are free either to obey God or to disobey God. And in Jude 6, it speaks of those who followed him in his rebellion as the angels which kept not their first estate. Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, speaks of these as the devil's angels. Lucifer, of course, became the serpent or that great dragon, the devil and Satan, and became the chief or arch enemy of Jesus Christ and his people in this world. So you ask, where do demons come from? They come from these fallen angels that followed Lucifer in his rebellion, most likely. Other angels, two-thirds, remained loyal to God, and they are called in 1 Timothy 5.21, the elect angels, and in Matthew 25.31, the holy angels. Not only are angels volitional creatures, they have a will, they are sentient or intelligent beings that are above man in the hierarchy of creation. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 7 says that when God made Adam, he made him a little lower than the angels. So angels are like man, intelligent, rational creatures. They are thinking beings, sentient creatures. They're not just like rocks or plants or even instinctive animals, but they are able to reason and to think. But unlike man, they are spirits without bodies. Now we know that animals are bodies without souls. They have personalities, that's for sure, but they don't have an eternal or immortal soul. And we know that men are bodies and souls. There's both a physical and a spiritual component in our composition, right? We are made both physiological and psychological beings. Angels are spirits without bodies. Hebrews 1.7, which we read just a moment ago, says, Who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. They are pure spirit. Now that doesn't mean they're just amorphous ghosts, for the Bible teaches that angels have a form, and it also teaches that they may assume 
a physical body. They're not ordinarily visible. They're part of another dimension. But they may assume a physical body. As Hebrews chapter 13 verse 1 tells us, Be not forgetful to entertain strangers. For thereby, the writer says, some have entertained angels unawares. They didn't realize that the person to whom they were interacting with or ministering to was one of these heavenly beings that has assumed a very normal kind of physical appearance. And they are capable of doing that. Acts chapter 12, Peter is in prison and it says that a man came to Peter and it was an angel. Peter thought that he was dreaming, but he said the man unloosed his shackles around his wrists and his feet and delivered him, opened the door and delivered him through from the prison. And when he was on the outside of the prison, it says that the angel left him and Peter realized that this had all happened without his knowledge or without his awareness of how it was happening, but he realized that it wasn't a dream or a vision at all, but it was an actual experience. An angel had delivered him who appeared in the form of a man. You may remember in the Old Testament when Jacob wrestled with the angel all night, and as the day began to break, the angel said, let me go. And Jacob said, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. And the angel changed his name from Jacob, which means heel catcher, trickster, or supplanter, to uh, Israel, which means prince with God. But in the process, this blessing came with uh, its own burden. The angel touched him in the hollow of his thigh, which probably means he dislocated his hip. And Jacob walked with a limp the rest of his life as a reminder that blessing often comes at great cost. And as a reminder that uh, if God blesses us, it's not because we are more powerful than him, but it's because uh, he let us win and he does so in his grace. So anyway, angels are spirits without bodies. What have we learned so far? Angels are special creations of God created to be messengers and worshipers around the throne. They are volitional creatures who have a will. They can either obey God or disobey God. Some were loyal to God. In fact, the majority of the angelic host was loyal to God. Only about a third of them followed Lucifer in his revolt and rebellion. They're sentient or intelligent beings. They're spiritual, not physical creatures. And another thing the Bible teaches us about angels is that they do not enter into relationships with each other or with any other creature. The only relationship they have is with their creator, Jesus tells us in the New Testament that they neither marry nor are given in marriage. The angels do not procreate. They do not uh, have little angels. And the angels cannot die. Therefore, the number of angels has neither increased nor decreased since God originally made them. The same number of angels exist today that existed in Genesis 1-1 when God initially created them. The number does not change. In the Bible, furthermore, angels are depicted as God's army. They're called the heavenly host, which means the heavenly army. And like I mentioned earlier, they have different gradations of rank within the angels. There are cherubim and seraphim. The word cherubim means winged lion. And uh, seraphim are another kind of unique winged creatures. You can read about these kinds of creatures in Isaiah chapter 6, Ezekiel chapter 1, Revelation chapter 4, 
and various other places in the Bible. You say, are there really creatures like that? I think there's no doubt that God made a variety and diversity of creatures in his universe, both visible and invisible. You know, every time they are able to get to dive lower into the depths of the ocean and to discover more of what is in these deep ravines and valleys that they didn't have the equipment to explore at one point. Every time they come back with new kinds of creatures that are just perplexing. Sometime do a search on the internet at strange marine life and it will boggle your mind. The colors, the faces, the structure, the sizes, the shapes. It is just amazing, my friends, the variety and the diversity that God has made in his world. And if God did that in the natural creation or in the seeable, touchable world in which we live, is there any reason to think that he might not have done that also in the spiritual realm with which we're unfamiliar? You say, well, Brother Mike, I don't believe in anything that I can't wrap my mind around. Well, may I say, dear friends, uh, you're in for a big surprise. <laughs> Isn't it wonderful to consider all of the things that he has made? Oh, my friends, such a variety and beauty in God's creation. Angels are cherubim, seraphim. These are different forms of the same genus or species. By the way, that little suffix im at the end of a word has the effect of making it plural. So a cherub is one cherub. Cherubim are plural number of these cherubs. Seraphim are more than one seraphs. Archangels, there are principalities, powers, dominions, rulers, and there are millions of angels. The Bible says that there are 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. You say, how much is that? Well, 10,000 times 10,000 is 100 million. And then you just keep adding thousands and thousands of zeros onto that. I, there's no way for me to say how many there are. I believe God knows how many there are. Some angels are winged, like cherubim and seraphim and those living creatures we studied last week in Ezekiel chapter 1. But most angels are not depicted in the Bible as having wings. None of them, as stated, are chubby little babies. But evidently, if you look at the encounters that people in the Bible had with angels, when someone experienced an angelic visitation, it was an intimidating experience for the first words out of the angel's mouth are almost without exception, fear not. I've never been afraid when I saw a chubby little baby. Have you? <laughs> but if you see a real angel, my friends, may I say it has the effect of uh, frightening an individual. It's a very intimidating experience. These are spectacular creations of God and it's amazing to me that God in his wisdom made such a, an array of creatures in his universe, even these spirit beings, these spirit creatures that we know as angels. You know, when Elisha and his servant were surrounded by the enemy army and his servant awoke that morning and looked out the window and saw the enemy surrounding them like grasshoppers, he said, alas, my master, how shall we do? And Elisha said, there be more with us than with them. And the servant obviously thought that the old prophet had lost his mind, but Elisha prayed, O Lord God, open his eyes. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw on the outskirts of the enemy army that was surrounding them like grasshopper, the heavenly host. It says there were horses and chariots of fire 
encircling the enemy army. And suddenly he was at peace. Now, they weren't visible to him by natural vision, but yet they were there nonetheless. And when God opened his eyes and gave him the ability to see, he saw that they were protected in a way that he didn't realize that they were protected. And I like the way it describes this heavenly army, horses and chariots of fire. Indeed, my friends, God's heavenly host is very amazing. In fact, one angel in the days of Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 35, one angel in one night destroyed 185,000 enemy soldiers. In one night, one angel single-handedly destroyed 185,000 enemy combatants. Another thing the Bible tells us about angels, they are observers of the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 10, we have a very curious passage of scripture where he's speaking about head coverings. And head coverings in 1 Corinthians 11, I would tell you, this is my opinion, has to do with hair, not hats. Hair, not hats. Okay, that's just my opinion, but I'll throw that out there for your consideration. But it says that when the women pray, they must pray with their head covered because of the angels. What a strange verse. Have you ever thought about it? A woman must pray with her head covered because of the angels. You say, what do angels have to do with it? Well, angels, the Bible teaches, are observers of the church. Very interesting line of thought here. Listen to Ephesians 3.10. He says, to the intent that now under the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, he's talking about angels, might be made known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. What he's saying there is we have some spectators watching us this morning. To the intent, he says, that now unto the principalities and powers in the heavenly places might be known by the church. It means might be made known. What he's teaching us in this verse is that the church is showcasing the wisdom of God before these heavenly watchers. By the way, in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 4 verse 17, angels are called heavenly watchers. And what are they watching? They're watching, first of all, the people of God in worship. Now, we're doing something this morning that they're also doing in heaven. I've already stated that angels are worshipers before God's throne. And what are we met here at Old Bethel Church to do this morning but to bow before the Lord and to worship Him as well? And they're watching us. And I'm sure, my friends, that they can worship a lot better than I can. Don't you think they can do it better than we can? Do you think their voice cracks? Do you think that their mind wanders? Do you think that their bodies are frail? And, oh, I believe they are Johnny on the spot. They hit every note just right. I believe the angels know how to worship. If we want to learn to worship better, we could study those worship scenes in Revelation and see how they do it. But for some reason, they are mesmerized and perplexed by what we're doing here. We are showcasing we're making known the manifold wisdom of God. That word manifold in Ephesians 3.10 means many colored. You ever looked through a kaleidoscope? And as you turned it, you saw the many colors. All of the colors of the rainbow. Or perhaps you've seen a rainbow. You've seen how a droplet of water or a prism breaks the light into its different hues and its different colors. And you say, uh, preacher, that is just amazing. Well, I'm telling you, dear friends, God's wisdom is variegated or many colored. And it's manifold. 
you see God's wisdom in creation. You see God's wisdom in providence. You see God's wisdom most especially in redemption. And as the church preaches and celebrates the wisdom of its creator, like we are this morning, as we reflect on all that he's done, and we talk about it and we rejoice in it and we remind each other of it, my friends, the angels are our spectators. We are making known the manifold wisdom of God to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, the spiritual world of invisible realities. According to Mark chapter 13, verse 32, they are more knowledgeable than we are about divine things. You remember what Jesus said about his second coming? No man knoweth, no man, that's you and me, knoweth the day or the hour, know not the angels in heaven. The implication in the way that verse is written indicates that if men don't know it, then what about angels? For they are more knowledgeable than we are. That verse implies that they are more knowledgeable about divine things than we are. But as I stated, they're not redeemed. So they don't quite comprehend the glorious gospel of God's love for wretched fallen sinners. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12 says that we preach the finished work of Jesus Christ, which things the angels desire to look into. There's a verse in one of the hymns in our hymn book. We don't sing the hymn here, but it's a wonderful hymn. It's number 608 by Thomas Olivers. It was written in the 1700s. And I love this hymn. It's called, O Thou God of My Salvation, My Redeemer from All Sin. It talks about, in verse 3, while the angel choirs are crying, glory to the great I am, I with them will still be vying. Oh, this is good poetry. While the angel choirs are crying glory, that's what they're doing right now in heaven. While they're celebrating the glory of God in heaven right now, I'm competing with them on earth. I with them will still be vying, glory, glory to the Lamb. Oh, how precious, oh, how precious is the sound of Jesus' name. Listen to this last verse. Angels now are hovering round us, unperceived amid the throng, wondering at the love that crowned us, glad to join the holy song. Hallelujah, hallelujah, love and praise to Christ belong. Angels now are hovering round us. Every time the church meets for worship, we have more people than you can see here. We have more congregants. Let me say it like that. There are more congregants at Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina this morning than appear on the surface. If we had a statistical tally board, which I'm glad we don't, if we had one up here that showed how many people were here today, I'm telling you it would be inaccurate because these heavenly watchers are observers of the church and they are hovering around us unperceived amid the throng wondering at the love that crowned us. They are perplexed. They really don't fathom why the Creator would have such mercy on sinful humanity. It is perplexing to them, and my beloved, it's perplexing to me too. I don't understand why He would love the likes of me. Do you? Have you ever gotten over that? Love sent my Savior to die in my stead. Why should He love me so? That's the $64 million question. That's the mystery of mysteries. That's the wonder of it all. Why would God love poor sinners like you and me this morning? My beloved, it is truly the most wondrous and amazing love. It's amazing grace. It's wondrous love, isn't it? 
What wondrous love is this, O my soul, O my soul, that caused the Lord of bliss to leave His heavenly throne, to come down to this sinful earth for my sake. Oh, my friends, that's wondrous love. Angels are observers of the church. And I love that verse in Hebrews 12, 22 that says, we're in Hebrews this morning, later in the book, chapter 12, verse 22, says, you have not come to Mount Sinai. I'm so thankful that we're not before this smoking, trembling, broken law, this angry judge who is going to condemn us all because our sins deserve His judgment. But my friends, we've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, to an innumerable company of angels. Oh, my beloved, if you ever really understand or grasp what I'm saying this morning, it will make worship seem all the more important to you. Angels are observers of the church. We've learned a lot about them. What else could we learn about them? They are agents of providence. And we'll hit this one right quickly. In our text, verse 14 of Hebrews chapter 1 says, Are they not all ministering spirits? What is an angel? A ministering spirit. A spirit, not a body. Spirits who are designed for ministry. They're ministering spirits sent forth. Who sends them forth? God does. He dispatches them. They are sent forth to minister to them who are heirs of salvation. Who's that? That's you and me. Heirs of salvation. Aren't we, my friends, the recipients, the beneficiaries of God's wonderful grace? We have inherited salvation. It's, it's not something we earned or worked for. We, we are heirs. It's an inheritance. It's given to us by grace. We are the heirs of salvation. Angels are ministering spirits whose purpose is primarily to minister to the people of God, to those who are the heirs of salvation. They're sent forth to minister. They are agents of providence. Psalm 103 verse 20 says, Bless ye the Lord, ye his angels, that excel in strength. Now they're stronger than we are. They have more ability and capacity. They can move more quickly. They can do things that are beyond our physical capacities to do. They excel in strength. That do His commandments. Notice these are angels that are obedient to God. They're loyal to Him. Hearkening unto the voice of His word. Bless ye the Lord, all ye His hosts, ye ministers of His that do His pleasure. Angels do the pleasure of the God who sends them. They are agents of providence. Now you say, Brother Mike, what is providence? Providence means that God is personally involved in the lives of his people. Personally involved. How does he do it? Primarily through these ministers that are dispatched from the throne of God in heaven to come to serve you and me in our needs. Genesis 28.12 tells the story of Jacob's dream at Bethel. Do you remember the story? He'd left home under duress. He spent his first night with a stone as his pillow, all alone. This pampered young man is out in nature all by himself. And as he sleeps, he sees this vision of a ladder, you remember, stretching from the earth to the heaven. The bottom touched the earth, the tops touched the heaven. And above the ladder, he sees God who speaks to him and confirms the covenant to him that he had made with his father 
Isaac and with his grandfather Abraham. And on the ladder, he sees the angels of God doing what? Just taking a break and having their siesta? No, they're in motion. They're ascending. That means going up. They're descending. That means they're coming down. Activity. Now, between the earth and the heaven, my friend, you say, God is too far away to be involved in my life. I'm telling you there's a connecting link. There's a ladder. And he is involved in our lives primarily through these agents of providence, these angels. They're ascending because they finished a task that he sent them to do, and they're going back to get a new assignment. They're descending because he's given these angels a task, a mission to accomplish, and they're coming down to do his pleasure. And notice there's constant motion. For the God who created the universe and who saved his people is always involved providentially in their lives. And primarily, again, through these agents of providence, these heavenly angels. In the book of Daniel, chapter 9, we learn that they were dispatched in answer to Daniel's prayer. And they came to strengthen him. They came to equip him. They came to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane to minister to him. They came to Elijah when he was depressed and slept under the juniper tree and wanted to die. The angel came and touched him and had prepared a meal for him. Arise and eat, he says. Angels are given to guard and defend God's children against danger and crises, events in their lives. They're sent to minister to believers at the time of their death. Remember Lazarus in Luke 16, 22? It says he was transported by the angels into Abraham's bosom, which means paradise. Now these are mysterious creatures, angels. Would you agree? That the point of Hebrews chapter 6, and though you may be intrigued by them, and I am, and thankful for them, yet my friends, our passage in Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that Jesus Christ is better. In fact, He's superior. Not just superior, He is so much better. Infinitely superior. Being made so much better than the angels as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. I'm thankful for angels, but I'm most thankful for my Savior, who has been exalted to a position which is greater than theirs and higher than theirs. Jesus Christ, remember this, is not simply one of the angels. He is so much superior to the angels as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. And when your loved one dies... They do not go to heaven to become an angel. God is not still adding angels to his group. They become joint heirs. They are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. They are elevated as the redeemed to the same position Jesus is to enjoy all of the blessings of fellowship with God, not just as his servants, but also as his children. You, my friends, I today am not just a minister of God here to do his bidding and to try to please Him, and to carry out the orders that He gives us. We are His children who've been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus and blessed in His only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we are joint heirs with Jesus. And if He has a name by inheritance that's better than the angels, you and I as joint heirs with Jesus will be elevated to a position even above and superior to them some happy day. What a wonderful passage this is. So rich, 
so replete with meditation. I mean, there's no way we could possibly comprehensively deal with it. What an intriguing subject. I trust, though, that your eyes today will be fastened on Jesus, not on Michael or Gabriel. And that's the message the Hebrews needed in that day.